0: The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D.
1: I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Edward Humes, whose book Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, has just been published by Avery Books. Ed, thanks so much for coming into the Slate studio to talk trash with me. It's a pleasure. Ed, I found Garbology absolutely fascinating and thought-provoking, and it certainly made me feel a lot less smug about my own wastefulness. When you live in New York City in a small apartment, you can start to feel like you're a hero if you've avoided being a candidate for the TV show Hoarders. But this book made me realize that I really don't deserve a medal just because I got stuff out of my home and put it in the trash or recycling containers. You begin the book by talking about some famous hoarders, people who can't let go of things. But as you point out, the amount of junk, trash and waste that hoarders generate is perfectly horrifyingly normal. It's just that most of us hoard it in landfills instead of living rooms. How much junk do Americans create every year?
0: Uh, More than I I realized before I started this project, because it turns out the official numbers on that are wrong. (laughs) Uh, But the the most accurate data is that the average American produces 7.1 pounds a day, every man, woman, and child. Um, That's what we roll to the curb. And if you could collect it on your front lawn and see it, (laughs) you'd realize we really are like those orders because... Each of our trash footprint would be 1.3 tons a year. It's so
1: much trash.
0: It is so much. And, you know, a quarter of it is containers and packaging, instant trash. You know, you, we're paying for the stuff that we immediately throw away, and then it lasts forever because it's plastic, a lot of it. What irony.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Things we intended to be disposed of uh, last forever.
1: As you say, America is number one in trash generation. 5% of the world's population, nearly 25% of the world's waste. Why? Is it all that plastic?
0: Well, part of it is the plastic. Part of it is the fact that we consume a lot, and that a lot many of our products are extremely wasteful. It's built into our consumer culture and has been for for decades, really since World War II. It really has become invisible, in part because we have this wonderful waste management structure that whisks it away. Right. It doesn't make it disappear, except from view. But, <laughs> uh, and part of it is because we've become normalized to really epic amounts of waste, uh, you know, junk mail, bottled water, appliances that never really shut off and waste epic amounts of electricity. We, mm-hmm. we just accept it and, and don't even see it anymore. And, and until you start looking at the cost of all that, then you know, perhaps people would take more notice.
1: Well, you you point out some things that really made me scratch my head. Between 1980 and 2000, the average American's trash load increased by a third, and nearly doubled since 1960. And again... That's just mind-boggling. You know, there was eco-awareness, perhaps not as much as today, but in 1980, we were conscious of waste. Do you have any theories for why we still continue to create more and more?
0: A couple of things. You know, from 1960 to to now, you can see that the order of magnitude greater amounts of plastic waste okay. in, in the waste stream it essentially was a negligible component of what we threw away in 1960, and now it's, you know, one of the largest components of it. The other part is that we We just make more wasteful products now than we used to. The idea of having a a television repair shop in your neighborhood is ludicrous. You can't fix those things. You throw them away and you get a new one. But that was not always the case in the very recent past. You you fix stuff. You reused it. It could be upgraded. Computers could be upgraded. They were invented to have new components plugged into them, the personal computer. And now, you know, I'm looking at my my smartphone sitting here. And when it's still working but obsolete, Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to replace it with a brand new one.
1: but the new one has new features.
0: It does. <laughs> and, you know, that's the trade-off between the wasteful product and the product that can be repurposed or, mm-hmm. or renewed in some way. And, in fact, it turns out you can get a refurbished yeah. uh, smartphone, which will have many of the same materials in it, gussied up again and given a warranty-like new. So actually, that's one great strategy for being less wasteful. It's like using a, buying a used car as a environmentally superior uh, choice uh, versus getting a new hybrid, and also cheaper.
1: Well, that reminds me, I mean, one of the things that you point out, we feel good about recycling, but every time we recycle, the products often get driven around in trash trucks or recycling trucks. One of every six big trucks in the U.S. is a garbage truck, you point out. And disposing of garbage and moving around recycling products is a very costly endeavor.
0: And recycling itself is inefficient. Mostly it's a salve to our conscience, frankly. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's, it's it, recycling is a bad solution. It's just better than throwing it all into a landfill. But that's the only thing it's better than. <laughs>
1: Now, in the introduction to the book, you tell the story of how America became China's trash compactor. Tell us the story of Zhang Yin.
0: Yeah, that was one of the other big surprises that uh, trash is now our number one export. What a, what a killer! You know? <laughs> but the Zhang Yin was uh, is the queen of trash, and she started out uh, emigrating from from China, and and her and her husband started a, a scrap business in the Los Angeles area going to landfills and and rescuing from the landfill paper scrap that nobody wanted and it turns out in that era in the early 90s China had this growing manufacturing base and a big paper shortage they had you know, essentially deforested themselves mm-hmm. and needed uh, these were all materials to make the cardboard boxes to put the products in that they were selling to us. And, and uh, she cornered the market on it and grew in an export business from the U.S.
1: I love uh, that she took advantage of the fact that most of the container ships that returning to China were leaving empty. Yes, so she so got a good
0: deal. Got on, a good on deal on those empty containers. The ships were, had to go back anyway. So she paid next to nothing to ship this stuff and uh then she started a paper company nine dragons paper in china became one of the biggest paper manufacturers or cardboard manufacturers in china using our stuff to to make her products so she became china's first female billionaire wow. <laughs> off of this this business model and you know now she's also america's largest exporter in terms of container loads going out with oh. our garbage in it. So the way I put it in, in, in the book is we have become China's trash compactor. The country that used to make things is now you know, making trash for the rest of the world <laughs> uh, that sees value in it that we don't.
1: You also spent a ton of time at Puente Hills. I never thought that a landfill could be so interesting, but this <laughs> is the place that houses most of Los Angeles County's garbage. 130 million tons of it so far. Describe Puente Hills for well, us. Well, it
0: is a literal mountain of trash, of garbage. Uh, or it's a mountain, but it's also a plateau because when you get to the top of it, it's not like you are you know, have a little space to move around. You could fit several football stadiums in their parking lots on this mound of trash. It is a true geologic feature. It is probably one of the best landfills in terms of how it's run uh, in the country. I mean, it's very efficient. Uh, it's very cost-effective. It does takes it goes to inordinate steps, of uh, putting in these layers of impermeable plastic and mm. these dams and conduits to try and protect the environment. But bottom line, we ha- took what was a, a valley filled with a dairy farm and cows and turned it into a mountain of trash that is one of the high points in L.A. You stand on top of this, and you are eye-to-eye eye with the tallest buildings uh, that you can see mm. in the distance, 500 feet tall. 750 feet above sea level. It's an aviation hazard of garbage. And the environment, you see the true apparatus of what we do have to do with these epic amounts of waste. First, you have this stream of trucks coming and dumping things. And it's not just hefty bags filled with, with waste. It's mattresses and sofas, whole truckloads full of seemingly edible food being dumped. If you've handled it in your life, it gets dumped there because somebody's treasure always becomes trash. Oh, right. Someday, and then you have the crews of people. You have firecrackers going off to drive away the seagulls. You have the aroma. <laughs> you have little predator drones, remote control planes, being used to chase the seagulls that the firecrackers don't. Yeah. You have whole crews chasing flocks of flying plastic bags that get windblown up there and are escaping. And then you have, so you have to have people who are just designated to go after them.
1: You, it's actually a very dangerous job. There have been in the U.S. a large number of fatalities. Yeah, well, every year there are, yeah. are
0: some fatalities and certainly many more injuries because you're, you're, you're moving around colossal uh, amounts of trash. You're compacting it with the, the, these giant bulldozers and crunchers, and and uh, uh, and then covering it over with dirt. And and these trash piles, it, when it comes in, it get 40, 50 feet high. And you're you're balancing on the top of this with your heavy equipment every day. A football field sized square of trash is wow. is being added to this this structure. And yeah, people get hurt doing it. And and uh, also there's a history of, of bodies being hidden and tucked right. away in the, right. these environments too. That happens as well. So occasionally everything grinds to a standstill while the the, the police come and search, usually.
1: One of the stories that comes up again and again is that nobody wants trash next to where they live. Everybody wants it somewhere else. Is it safe to live near a (sighs) landfill?
0: Well, this this is the Puente Hills that we were just talking about. The Garbage Mountain is the country's largest active landfill, and it is in the middle of a very densely populated area. You know that the, the houses grew up around it, so to speak, and that's right. that's why they go to all these. Uh, Measures uh, to uh, like keeping the seagulls away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's because the seagulls pick up garbage and then fight over it. Have these aerial battles over it and falls in people's yards. Right. Uh, they have sound barriers. They have these giant fans. They bring out to blow the stink in one direction or another, so the neighborhoods don't don't get inundated with it. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, is it safe? You know, every landfill ultimately leaks. I mean, you know, the classic example is Love Canal and, and uh, all the other Superfund sites. A third of them are, were landfills, you know, were yeah. dumps. So there, there's always a danger. But there's also the, the the air emissions from landfills. Not necessarily toxic, but methane is generated in large amounts. Very potent greenhouse gas. So that it turns out this was another one of the big surprises in it, that – for me, that landfills actually are worse for greenhouse gas emissions than burning the trash to make energy. It actually is worse for the climate.
1: Although, as you mentioned, the methane that is produced at Pointer Hills is used to to generate
0: electricity. Yeah, well, they do capture uh, some, though not all, of the methane emanating from this putrefying pile of 130 million tons. In fact, they could Stop putting trash there and it would generate epic quantities of methane for the next Mm. 20 years. But they capture and generate power with those gases sufficient for 70,000 homes.
1: One of the things I was surprised by was how disgusting America's streets were until relatively recently. I... thought, throwing trash into the street has been something from the Middle Ages. But you describe how New York in the late nineteenth century wasn't that different from Europe in the Dark Ages. In that sense at least. And you mentioned that in eighteen seventy two there were hundred and twenty thousand horses in New York City and they deposited about twelve hundred tons of manure and sixty thousand gallons of urine, and then often the dead horses were just abandoned where they fell. And then there were pigs that would wander around the streets of New York City eating garbage. That, that, is, that was astonishing to
0: me. Yeah, Dickens wrote about the pigs. Uh, he warned people to beware of the pigs. And he has this whole whole uh, account of, of coming across these rather uh, aggressive uh, trash-eating uh, pigs. Actually, the whole idea of piggeries was a big garbage solution uh, throughout the first half of the 20th century. Organized pig farms, municipal pig farms, to, to feed the restaurant and food waste, too. And then sell, of course, sell the the garbage-fed pigs on the
1: market. Although I heard, I, I you've <laughs> the mentioned the quality of the meat was yeah. a, a dicey. Colonel George E. Waring came to New York City's rescue.
0: Yeah, he's a fascinating figure. Now, first of all, New York did have a reputation then of being one of the dirtiest cities. Uh, people just threw their garbage on the ground. But this uh, this was a practice adopted from <laughs> the European homelands. Oh. Was a, we weren't the inventors uh, of that practice, but perfected it perhaps here. <laughs> And so uh, Colonel Waring was hired by the reformist admi- administration that was uh, br- voted in uh, af- after the Tammany Hall regime was, was ousted briefly. The new mayor wanted to hire Teddy Roosevelt to clean up the streets, but uh, Roosevelt wanted to be police commissioner instead and, and clean up that aspect of New York. So Colonel Waring took the job, and he was a sanitary engineer. He had designed the drainage uh, in uh, Central Park and brought sewer systems to, to as disease-fighting tools into various parts of the country and so he was going to clean up new york and he hired an army of these white clad street cleaners in fact it became the symbol of what a street cleaner would look like the white hat and the white they called them the white wings then and they literally cleaned up new york but the real innovation was what he did with the trash he Hmm had the first recycling operation on a municipal scale uh, and reclaiming the uh, different kinds of trash that were being disposed of and then put instead of dumping the rest in the east river which was the old practice started taking them to single dumps where the trash was kind of burned it wasn't a sanitary landfill like we have now but still it was an improvement Uh, and he would actually make money from reclaiming the Organic waste and making grease out of it, and he had these big reclamation plants. He reclaimed the metal and the tin and uh, and found new ways to use that. So it was a source of revenue for the city. It It was really cool. He pioneered these practices, and they were copied far and wide.
1: But as you said, they were abandoned. Soon after, um, that administration was was kicked out.
0: Yes, the reformers were kicked out. He was fired. Although many of the practices were retained, and even some more innovations, like waste by rail, uh, moving it by electric trolley car. uh, But um, the dumping uh, accelerated again, and some of the the more um, labor-intensive recycling efforts went by the wayside. But he had the first attempt to get New Yorkers to, to sort their trash.
1: I want to pause now for a moment to give away some books. Uh, But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. I would recommend for your downloading pleasure, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin by Masha Gessen, a book that I read and enjoyed recently. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download one of the 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, The Afterword will get credit. Now, Avery has kindly given us four copies of Garbology to give away to listeners, and Ed has been kind enough to sign them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Garbage Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, June 1st, 2012. And we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. Ed, as you mentioned earlier, there are things of value in what we throw away. Why is it so difficult to extract that value? Well, in some
0: cases, it's a technological or economic barrier, because uh, most of what we send to the landfill could be recycled, but either it's not cost effective to do so, or it's inconvenient to do so, or we don't have the infrastructure in place. Cities that don't have robust recycling efforts aren't sending things into the places they need to go to recycle them. So uh, there's that. There's the fact that we have incentives in our economy to be wasteful. Junk mail is a great Mm. example. Uh, We we are subsidizing junk mail (laughs) that is instant trash
1: again. I love the chapter on trash tracking. So tell us what that is. Well, uh, the Massachusetts
0: Institute of Technology decided to do this this trash tracker project. Really, the inspiration came from a work of science fiction that, that postulated if all objects were smart everything we handle and use every day, if it could report its location mm-hmm. back to you to somehow, the shades of big brother, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing would be wasted because everything would end up where it needed to be. So they took this idea and said, what if our trash was smart? And they started putting the innards of cell phones and they gradually refined the technology and attaching it to pieces of trash, secreting inside things, electronics, paper cups, old shoes, you name it. The test city they did the most work in was Seattle and they had volunteers do this and, and bring in their trash items. They'd get the track Attached to it and then throw it away how they normally would and let's see what happens because businesses have made an art and a science out of our supply chain management Mm -hmm. they know where everything comes from but the removal chain is this opaque and chaotic place and uh the idea was now we're going to find out well they found out all right and some of it's just crazy they they had computer printer cartridges that were placed in recycling bins that actually traveled back and forth across the country twice before they settled somewhere where they could be recycled. And you might say, well, big deal, finally got recycled. Well, sure, but it defeats the entire purpose of recycling Mm -hmm. because you've attached this enormous energy and carbon footprint from all these travels to it. And you'd have coffee cups that would take days to make it to where they were supposed to, and they would disappear in the system, things that would go to get offshored, You point out that
1: the only place in the world that can, I don't know if it's recycle or just treat cathode ray tubes, they're all in China. So every single old television that needs to be disposed of has to be sent to China. If it
0: doesn't end up just crushed in a landfill somewhere or illegally dumped somewhere, yeah. 12,000 miles of uh, of, uh, expenditure, To uh, But, yeah, a lot of our electronics, of course, ends up in in China or in other developing countries, uh, where the you know they are handled in ways that would be both illegal and immoral uh, on these shores, so mm-hmm. we're we're offshoring problems as well as um, expending a lot of uh, waste. And and the irony is, these are materials that are tremendously valuable, and uh, we need. I wonder how many people listening to this podcast know what they're supposed to do in their communities with a broken computer, or a used AAA battery, right, or right. a can of paint, yep. because there's all special things that have to be done with them uh, to handle them properly. Mm-hmm. And uh, we haven't made it easy on people to do that. If you stop focusing on what something costs when you walk out of the store with it and start thinking about what the cost across its lifetime is, right. then the the more wasteful choices stop being very attractive.
1: One of, I guess you would say, the stars of the book, uh, this woman, Bea Johnson, who reduced her family's annual trash production that's the material that isn't recycled repurposed given away or composted to less than a mason jar's worth how did she do that
0: well it it took a very uh, conscious effort that began with the fact that they moved from a big house to a little house and had to get rid of a lot of stuff you know and she talks about having to make the initially painful determination and then realizing well you know what that set of of good china and said of really good china was kind of duplicative we didn't really need all that stuff or and so they started going through the things and how much they really loved and what they really cared about and how much they just kept because they had space to put it in <laughs> uh, began to cause them to rethink how they consumed things and how they bought things and so she took that impulse and and turned it up about 10 notches uh bea bea Be- Be goes farther than most people i think w- would would or at least would at first But, for instance, she buys everything in bulk. When she buys produce, she won't buy produce that's wrapped in plastic. She brings her own mesh reusable bag. And it turns out a lot of those purchases are less expensive. When you buy large quantities in bulk, you start saving a lot of money. And, of course, you're cutting down on the container waste. And even things that come in a large container, it's better than getting many small containers. Right. She makes sure that she gets the ones that are in fully recyclable containers. And I said, geez, Bea, you must spend all your time doing this. She says, no, because I also – I've stopped the impulse buying. I just go – I go shopping once a week for groceries and twice a year for clothes. And I try and buy used clothes when I buy them because you'd be surprised what people throw away and you could buy buy used. So that's – that's their life and they cut their you know her husband was very reluctant and 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 she got him to do the numbers and they found out that they were saving 40 percent of their household expenditures Mm -hmm. that's a lot of money
1: now what about on a municipal level there was a great story that you told about the example of denmark um, which uh, has had very good success with waste to energy plants they do this thing called Cogeneration. Explain what that is, and and it is. There's some of that in the United States.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's really cool. And the waste the waste energy uh, has has had a mixed history in the U.S. It's been embraced very enthusiastically in, in many European countries. And Denmark's a real leader. You know, they uh, took the lessons of the 1970s and the oil embargo and uh, things that spurred a lot of us, uh, including the United States, on to try and become more renewable and more energy efficient. And our efforts faded pretty quickly. Denmark stayed with it, you know, and so they had a number of solutions, and one of which was to stop the landfilling and build these community-based waste to energy plants. And instead of the big, you know, in the US, it's always got to be this giant utility-scale, huge acreage of solar panels in the desert, huge trash-to-energy plants that, you know, like swallow up whole neighborhoods, it panics people. And in Denmark's a smaller country, they made mm-hmm. they said trash is a local problem, it should have a local solution. So they have little trash plants. And one of them they're building now is a community ski slope and tucked inside it is a is a waste energy plant. And so they bring their trash there. They separate out all the recycling And they recycle way more than we do, too. It's not like they're shoveling it all in furnaces to make power. And then they have these plants, and it was a big undertaking for them. Because not only did they construct the plants, but they created this underground infrastructure, some of which American cities have done a little bit of this, New York included, where the heat that the burning the trash uh, generates goes through this, these conduits and heats buildings. And so it's a very cheap form of heat in a cold mm-hmm. country. But the main purpose of the plants is to also uh, generate electricity with, by generating steam. So it's very efficient. You're getting this cogeneration, direct heating of homes and then uh, indirect creation of electricity. They get uh, about 48% of their waste now goes into plants like this.
1: We're getting to the end of the interview but I'm curious about what changes all that you learned in researching this book had on you. What habits have you changed? What attitudes uh, (laughs) have changed in your own life?
0: Well, there's a couple things that really hit me hard. One is the the trash artists in San francisco they have these artists in residence—and the things they find that people throw away that have such value, you know, the uh, the, the photographs, the uh, the works of art that they actually yeah. recover from the dump, the sewing kits that you belong to somebody's grandma—all this useful material that they turn into either the tools to make art or the art itself—just struck me that how how we have devalued such wonderful things and turned them into trash. So that was the first thing uh, that I learned, that I didn't want to throw away those kinds of things Mm. anymore. And then the second thing was this... this idea I got from Andy Keller, uh, who is the founder of Chico Bags, this disposable—I mean, rather reusable bag company. He's become a real activist against disposable grocery bags, and he says plastic bags are the gateway drug to waste. <laughs> and if you can start with a small solution, like saying, "Okay, the average American uses 500 plastic grocery bags," in a to year? stop that in a year. Wow! Yeah, uh, that's what I said. Wow! I thought, well, you know. That's an easy thing to fix. And then if you if you can change that wasteful habit, it leads to something else. Maybe I, I, I start using reusable uh, coffee cup instead of you know, disposable ones now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it sort of lets you do a little bit and see that you have reduced your waste a little bit and then move on to the next thing. Anybody can do that. That's the great thing about waste. That's the, that's the flip side of this really icky story, that anybody can really do something that has an effect on their, their wastefulness and feel a sense of accomplishment because they really are accomplishing something by doing right. it. Right.
1: right. We uh, perhaps can't individually uh, change landfill policies, but we can each take charge of our own lives and make less waste just mm. independently. And
0: it's, it as a chain reaction because if we are refusing wasteful products and wasteful things, it creates a market
1: force. Well, that's uh, a great thought to end on ed thanks so much for coming in to talk rubbish with me that was edward humes whose new book garbology our dirty love affair with trash is available in bookstores now our engineer was chris wade the executive producer of slate podcast is andy bowers thanks for listening to the afterword for slate.com i'm june thomas